Well, good morning. Hope you are doing outstanding this morning. Go ahead and grab a copy of the scriptures and open them with me to Mark chapter 7. I know that your heart swells with anticipation every time I bring out the whiteboard, wondering uh, what type of glorious stick figure I will draw today. Uh, But like any good movie, you'll have to wait with bated breath for about 27 minutes before we draw our attention over here. This is a uh, big week in the life of our church, has been, will be. Uh, Celebrate the fact this week we had students, our teenagers, serving on mission throughout the city. Thanks to Toby and team for their leadership there. Really proud of you students who served and gave your week to care for people in our city. This coming week we begin our vacation Bible school. Here, Amber and her team have done a remarkable job getting ready to love and care for children this week. If you don't believe me, go to our gym. It is transformed into a paradise back there. So go and see and uh, thank Amber and her team for their outstanding work uh, in providing and preparing for Vacation Bible School. We hope that you will join us. If you have negative stereotypes of Vacation Bible School gone wild in the past, we ask that you would uh, check this out because it will be altogether different. We're really excited about what will happen here this week. And as always, what we do with Vacation Bible Schools or Youth Mission Trips is not intended to supplement, but rather to complement the work that we hope is going on in your families throughout the week. And this morning gives us a great opportunity to thank significant players in that, and that is the dads in the room, the role that dads play in the process of loving and leading their families for that We are very thankful. However, I don't want to simply stop by thanking those of us who are biological fathers in the room, because Paul's words in 1 Corinthians remind us that as believers in Christ, whether you have biological children or not, we are all instructed to be fathers to one another, to care for one another. These are the words from 1 Corinthians 4. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then to be imitators of me. Now to our American ears, that seems overly prideful, right? But what we see Paul doing is setting a model for us of what it means to be a man in the life of the church, and that is to lead in such a way that others are drawn to follow the pace that you've set. And so that is a responsibility that we all have, a responsibility that we hope you care for whether you have biological children or not. And this morning we thought, what was the best gift, the best way we could honor our men in the church? Pinning a rose to your uh, vest does not seem like the best way to do that. We've given books in the past, and um, this year we decided that the best way we could say thanks is with a root beer and beef jerky on your way out this morning. So if you're a man in the room, praise Jesus on your way out this morning. We have a gift for you that you can enjoy as you take a nap today. Blessings, and we are thankful. This reality, like many others, provides us an opportunity to see and somewhat microscopic form reflections of a truer and better one, right? While we may celebrate fathers, and I hope you do, saying thanks and honoring them, we recognize that even on our best days, we're a pale reflection of our heavenly father, the perfect one. And it is to him that we owe the greatest debt of honor this morning, and we want to turn our hearts there as we seek to hear from him in the scriptures. So if you'd join me as we pray. God, it is good for us to give thanks. It is good for us to honor people who serve faithfully. We thank you for your common grace in our world that allows us to have days like this where we we seek to honor those who are pace setters, those who are loving and leading and caring for others well. And yet we 
we would ask that our hearts would not bend towards selfishness or pride on these days, or even insecurity and doubt, feeling like somehow because we don't have biological children, we're insignificant, or because our earthly father was less than perfect, we bow up in bitterness and discouragement on this day. God, whatever our story is, we're reminded that you are the truer and better Father. You are the perfect one. And it is to you that we owe the thanks for any grace that we see in our lives that allows us to love and care for people well. And so we say thank you. Thank you for fathering all of us. And we ask that in the way that you do father us, that you would speak tenderly to us through your word, that as a dad you would bring correction where it's necessary, that you would speak words of encouragement where our hearts have grown callous, that you would bring hope where there is doubt and fear. And we ask that for the fruitfulness and the fame of the gospel here in this city. Amen. Amen. Mark 7, uh, we will hit the ground running with two stories this week. Uh, I was supposed to teach the, sec- uh, the first story we'll look at last week, but the Syrophoenician woman dominated uh, our text. So we're going to look uh, at the end of Mark chapter 7 and the beginning of Mark chapter 8 in our series Kingdom Come through the Gospel of Mark. So Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, I'll read. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And when they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking them aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up into heaven and he sighed and said to him, Apatha, that is, be opened, and his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. So let's pause there for a moment before we transition to Mark 8. We see the continuing expansion of God's mission as he is declaring and demonstrating the kingdom coming on earth in the form of Christ. He's traveling back through the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee where home base is. And here we see what is becoming a quite familiar story in the Gospel of Mark. They, no definition told of who the they is, but they bring to him one who is broken, this one being deaf, who can't speak properly, likely because he can't hear. And they begged Jesus to heal him. This has become the calling card of Jesus, right? They know this is what he's known for. He's going to heal the broken. So they bring this one to Jesus and beg for his touch and for his healing. But notice in this story, we see this being more so a private miracle, not designed in this case to show off the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't do this quite publicly, but rather he pulls him aside, and in a sheer act of mercy and grace, acts on his behalf, groaning at the brokenness of the world, praying to God, and notice how God works. He says, be opened. He does all the work. He does the work of opening the hearts and the eyes and the ears of those who are broken and does that for this one as well. And he charges him, what he said before in numerous stories we've seen in Mark, to tell no one, but almost in the next sentence we see that his fame is far too great for them to keep quiet. So while he charges them to be quiet, they all the more zealously, in verse 36, proclaim it and make what is a great statement, right? In verse 37, being astonished before beyond measure, they say, he has done all things well. What a good word. 
That is a word I hope you leave encouraged by this morning. He has done all things well. The statement that's made about God, even from Genesis 1, right? Looking back over his good work in creation, he says in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. He truly has done all things well, and for that, these anonymous ones are thankful. Now, at this point, you may be tempted to say what I was tempted to say in preparing for this week's sermon. If you've been with us for the last 20 or so weeks through the Gospel of Mark, my mind went in the text like, I've heard this before. This is the same sermon I've preached before. I don't know how to make this one any distinct than the other six sermons that we've preached that highlight this very same point, that Jesus, as the Son of God, can do miraculous things, can heal the broken, can mend those that are torn and ravished by sin. Perhaps that is actually the very point of these sermons. The recurring theme of the power of Jesus to do for others what they could not do for themselves is the drum that we need beaten in our hearts consistently. If not, we can be lulled to sleep by the power and the provision of God. Perhaps you're like me. Uh, I like to sleep with a fan on. That's just the way I roll, all right? If I go to a hotel, which unfortunately I had to do uh, for several nights this week, the hotel fan air conditioner unit never sounds like the fan in my bedroom, right? I can't make it stay running all the time, and even when I do get it running, it's got some type of weird tick that's kind of like just a consistent beat. There's something going on, and so I spend an hour laying in bed trying to predict the pattern of the AC unit that the hotel thing is beating on, okay? I'm trying to fall asleep, but there's a pattern, much less if I'm sleeping in the room with another dude and he has some snoring fit or something crazy going on, and my brain can't handle that, all right? I get sucked in, it captivates my attention, and I can't zone out. But you put me in my bedroom with my fan on speed three, all right? It's constant, consistent. Sarah likes it on speed one. Speed three is what does it for me, all right? Give me five minutes with that, and I am done. That's why I prefer to sleep through golf more than any other sport known to man, right? All the commentation sounds exactly the same. Never captures my attention, draws my heart out of my slumber, so as soon as I start to fade out, I'm done. This idea, this white noise principle, is even an app on my phone, right? I've got white noise, brown noise, pink noise, and blue noise, in case you would like to check my phone afterwards. So if I end up in a hotel where the AC doesn't work, I can just set up the white noise app and let it run all night. This zoning out in white noise and tuning in when there's something new or something distinct is a grave danger for those of us that have walked with Jesus for any length of time. Because white noise, the ability to miss the miraculous, the powerful, the awe-inspiring of God, is most true for those who are closest to Jesus. In fact, the general dullness of the disciples is contrasted throughout Mark's Gospels with the captivating power of God in the lives of outsiders. They say he has done all things well. They walk away in disbelief, the miraculous provision of God, and yet those that are closest to Jesus seem consistently to miss it. Notice in Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, so some unknown passing of time transitions chapter, eight, or chapter 7 to chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. So we, we're, we're setting the scene. Some time has passed. Mark's making the point. Again, a great crowd has gathered. We know that what is going to come is going to be a refrain of an earlier story that we've encountered in Mark's gospel. A great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on this crowd, because they've been with me for three days, and they have nothing to eat. 
If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on their way. And some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So press pause with me again. We see that this story, even to those of you who may be new to the scriptures, is like, I think I've heard that before, right? Seems like just a couple of chapters ago we had a story that was eerily reminiscent of this scene. A replay of an early story with some distinctly different details. The place is different, the number is different, the number of food is different. Meaning for us that this is not simply a retelling of the other story, but a distinctly separate event. And yet, in this distinctly separate event that is almost a parallel of the early, earlier story, the disciples still ask the same boneheaded question. They say, how can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? They ask the same question. Now, we don't know how much time has passed. I'm not sure what water's been under the bridge. But we have to think in this story, this, the same guys that have been with Jesus, they've seen his miraculous work before, they come to the same scene, and they ask the question, what are we going to do? Now, you may be stunned. Like I've seen maybe five movies in my life. One of them is Jaws, all right? Uh, I, I'm not a movie connoisseur, but when I sit down and watch a movie like Jaws, and it replays every, you know, every day on TBS, right? So if I need to zone in the afternoon, you know what is coming in a movie like Jaws, right? Some dude goes for a swim, the music starts playing, and in your head you know. I've seen this before. Dude's going to get eaten, right? You know what's coming. Now we have even sillier movies, like Snakes on a Plane, or Overly Aggressive Octopuses, or Octopi, or whatever the plural of that is. You know, in these movies, you know what's coming, right? You hear the music, you see the refrain, you know what's coming. And in this scene, we have the same picture painted for us. The music is playing, the scene is so familiar, and yet the disciples are dull about the power and the provision of God. And it's easy for us, with our eyes on the scriptures, to look at this and say, how in the world, how do they miss this? Like, how do they miss God's provision in this case? I would suggest to you that this is not the only place we see examples like this in the Bible. Turn with me to Exodus 14. Go back in your Bibles, second book, to Exodus 14. In this story, we drop ourselves into the scene of God's miraculous deliverance of the people from slavery in Egypt. After the plagues that have come, after the crossing of the Red Sea, we see some summary statements, such as Exodus 14, verse 30. Exodus 14, verse 30 and 31. Thus, this is a summary statement, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. This is a statement that you would expect on the heels of the plagues and the Red Sea deliverance, right? No one looks back on the Red Sea and says, wow, I'm strong, I nailed that, right? You look back on the plagues and on the Red Sea crossing knowing God acted on your behalf. You look back on those scenes with humble praise, and that's what the people do in Exodus 15. Notice, we have one of our first recorded praise songs in the scriptures. And it's great because they praise the killing of the Egyptians. It's awesome. Not lyrics that are in our praise songs often. Okay? They look back on this scene and they praise God for his mighty power. And then, Exodus 16. In my Bible, this is on the same page. As Exodus 14 and Exodus 15 God is great, songs of praise, he has delivered us, Exodus 16. 
And they set out for Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, notice how quickly that shifts. God, I praise you. You have delivered me. The next chapter, why didn't you just kill us back there? We were eating meat. And notice where they placed the blame. This is stunning, the depravity of the human heart. You, God, you're the one that brought us out here. Remember, you did it. And so what does God do, Exodus 16, 4? I'll show you, right? The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to make it rain bread from heaven for you. God works, he delivers, the people grumble and complain, and again, God lavishes his gracious provision on the people who consistently miss it. Or consider 1 Kings 17 through 19. Turn over there now, 1 Kings 19. If you're new to the scriptures, don't be afraid to use the table of contents. No shame in that at all. 1 Kings 17. It's going to be a few books to the right. We drop in on the story of Elijah, one that is quite familiar to many of us who have been around the scriptures for a while. 1 Kings uh, Kings 17, chapter 17 through 19. We see these stories in rapid-fire succession, fed miraculously by ravens, raises a widow's son, and then the ultimate trash-talking text in the scriptures, right? Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Many of you familiar with that story? Where God shows out his miraculous provision, destroying the false prophets and demonstrating himself against all odds as the one true God. And then 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3. Ahab the king told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid And he arose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Two chapters of God showing himself strong, demonstrating his power, and then we've got Elijah running for his life, scared to death on the next chapter of God's gracious provision. This points out to us one of the most common themes in the Old Testament, and that is the theme of remembering. Because the forgetfulness of the human heart is one of the most nagging implications of our sinfulness. The forgetfulness of our hearts is one of the most nagging implications of our sinfulness. They say, where are we going to get food? He's just shown them where they're going to get food. I imagine Jesus standing in that moment saying, we've been here before, boys. Didn't you, can I move on to another story? Didn't you get this one the last time? The question that I had to turn to myself this week is how often does he have to say the same thing about me? We've been here before, Matt. I've shown you that I'm powerful in this moment. I've taught you to depend on me in this space. Why are we here again? How often does God say the same thing about us because of the dullness of our hearts, because his power, his provision have become white noise for us? Verse 5, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and said to them, to his disciples, to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, 
He said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalitha. So God does what only God can do. He provides food in the desert. He provides bread for the people. And they eat and are satisfied. And just like the last time, though the number is different, we see that he gives an abundance. Last week we saw with the Syrophoenician woman the provision of crumbs of grace. Here we see that a banquet is spread, that more than the people can consume. Now I want to consider in our time remaining some common themes about these two stories and in fact about these miraculous stories that we've seen throughout Mark's gospel. If you have a pen or something to write on, I'm going to give you three big ideas for us to consider that we see in common with these stories that I hope will help us propel the gospel, the good news of Christ, out of white noise state in our soul. Let's consider these common themes against the backdrop of white noise in our lives. What is common about these miracle stories? Number one, we see an overwhelming brokenness of the people. An overwhelming brokenness of the people. Whether it is a demoniac, a woman with the issue of blood, a grieving father, a Syrophoenician woman, a deaf man, or 9,000 people scattered on the hillsides. Brokenness is everywhere. This is part of life in a fallen world, and it is not the brokenness that Jesus condemns. Notice that. He doesn't condemn the deafness. He doesn't condemn the hunger. Rather, he calls out the lack of faith that the people demonstrate. Brokenness is everywhere, and brokenness is something that is common in our lives as well. Let me try to illustrate it for us this way. Uh, I don't know if everyone will be able to see, but it'll get us close. I was thinking this week, how do, we, how do we think rightly about brokenness? Most of us aren't the deaf man. We're not hungry sitting on a hillside, but yet we recognize that we come to the table with brokenness in our souls as well. So how do we think about brokenness and the miraculous provision of God? So on uh, this chart, on uh, on the board, I have spiritual growth running up this axis and time going here. So we're going to consider the age of your maturity, your physical age or your spiritual maturity, and your conformity to the image of Christ. So this would be Romans 8. We're told that God's desire for those of us that are in Christ is to perfectly conform us to the image of Christ. So we recognize he'll only fully do when we're glorified, but he is at work now sanctifying us to conformity to the image of Christ. My little dash line here is meant to illustrate for us the fact that there is a point in time in your need and in your brokenness where you are lost, dead, separated from God, nothing you can do, and God acts on your behalf to bring, de- to bring life from that which is dead. So for all of us, this is the default starting point, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, we may put dots in different places down here. Some of us uh, show decay more than others, right? So you may see decay and deadness demonstrated in people's lives in varying degrees, but we all, the scriptures teach, are separated from God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And God acts through Christ to bring us from death to life. Now, my question for us, so we might write here, God's provision. So God provides death to life. Now, the question is, is this the only time in our lives when we're meant to experience brokenness? Is this the only place of our need? Let me suggest to you that I think spiritual growth and transformation and conformity to the image of Christ works more like this. And here's what I mean by that. 
I think that the scriptures would teach and what we see in the word is that there is consistently this dueling tension in our lives that's at play all the time where we see God's provision and then we see our overwhelming need. And as we grow in conformity to the image of Christ, God's provision and our neediness are consistently at play in our lives. So God brings us from death to life. He provides what you most need in this state. And yet, what you're going to find, if you're new to Christ, if you just have started a relationship with the Lord, you're going to find, you're going to get about a year or two in, and you're going to think, this isn't all rosy. Like, my life's still really tough. Just kind of whisper in the back closet, like, bad things still happen to Christians, right? Things overwhelmingly, life in a fallen world, is going to continually provoke in our lives need. So when you're on this side of the little curve, when you're in a season of God's provision, what are the emotions that are going to bubble up? Joy, right? Joy, worship, encouragement. What are you going to face over here in seasons of need? Doubt, discouragement, fear frustration. And then what God is going to do for all of us is he is going to continue to do what he's doing in the text. He's going to continue to provide. So he's going to act on your behalf to provide for you to, as growth is happening, continue to conform you to the image of Christ. So if we were drawing a line here, we might draw it through the center of the circles like this. I would suggest that that is the goal. But it's never going to feel like that straight line of ascent, is it? It's always going to feel like spurts of provision and then pain. Provision and then pain. Provision and then pain. And when you're in a season of pain, it's going to feel like fear, doubt, discouragement, frustration. When you're in a season of provision, it's going to feel like joy and encouragement. That's why you get 250 people in a room together, and it's almost impossible to preach a good sermon. Because you all come to the table at different places on this little loop-de-loop, right? Some of you come this morning in a season of God's provision. He's acted on your behalf in your brokenness to do something that astounds you, and you got out of bed this morning skipping, right? Your heart was encouraged. Some of you this morning found yourself here, right? You're on the backside of this loop-de-loop. You're in a season of need, hunger, deafness, dullness, wondering if God is going to come through. The question for us that I, I want to pose from our text this morning is what happens here? Because this is the place where the action happens for Christians. We all know people whose life got frozen on the backside of the spiral, don't we? They had an experience with God, passion, encouragement, hope, then life got really tough, and their face froze in a perpetual frown. Right? Everything about life is discouraging, hopeless, dreadful. What happens? How do we apply the gospel to our hearts in this moment? Because, and this is the encouragement for point one, we don't resent need because need is the place of grace. We don't resent need because need is the place of grace. Romans 8 that I uh, alluded to a moment ago, for those he foreknew, I'm sorry, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those he called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, if God's goal is to conform dead sinners into the image of Christ, we can rest assured this process will not be pain-free. Right? So, we need not bemoan places of need because that is exactly where we see Jesus at work throughout Mark's gospel. You want to meet Jesus, be in a place of need in the gospels. 
And so idea number two, the brokenness of the people, overwhelming brokenness of the people, and in each of these cases, idea number two, the broken people are confronted with the provision of God. So idea number two is the provision of God. So brokenness, need is going to be a consistent refrain in the Christian's life. And in the face of this brokenness and need, we are going to be met by the provision of God. So let's consider for a moment how the provision of God is seen in our lives. Or to use our imagery from this morning's text, how does God feed us on a daily basis? We used to sing a song for Baptist Church growing up. Count your many blessings. Count them one by one. I want you to do a little bit of introspection this morning to consider how the provision of God is seen in your life on a regular basis. First, you, every one of you, are the daily recipients of the common grace of God. It is remarkable for us to consider the amount of common grace that fills our lives every day. Up until this point in your life, every one of you that are sitting here this morning listening to me, whether you are in Christ or not, he has lavished grace upon you. He has provided your daily bread. He has given you clothes to wear. He has given you the ability to hear the gospel this morning. And for us, in the face of our sinful rebellion, he has done that, right? He has lavished grace on us. One of the things that I love to see among teenagers is teenagers who come back from their first cross-cultural missions experience, whether it's in their own city or traveling somewhere around the world, and they're going to stand before you and say something like, I didn't realize how good I had it until I was there, right? You've, you've all heard that before. It, it was not until I looked in the face of that person who had nothing that I realized, man, I'm really, I, I'm blessed beyond measure. I can't believe how fortunate I am. As an adult who has walked with the Lord for any length of time, it should not take a cross-cultural missions experience to bring your heart to a point of daily thankfulness. That is very common and needed in the life of a 12 or 13-year-old. For those of us who have walked with Jesus for 20 years, this should be the steady music playing in the earbuds of your life. And while a cross-cultural experience may heighten that, you should be maturing to the point of saying, God, I am a rich recipient of your grace every single day. The temptation for all of us is to believe that we actually earned our own bread when he gave us this day our daily bread. Right? For the unbeliever here this morning, God has been so gracious to you as to allow the sun to rise on the evil and the good, to send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He has been so good to you. Not only that, not only his daily provision, but consider the ways that he restrains evil every single day in ways that we can't even fathom. It will happen, watch, this week. The next school shooting or mass murder that happens in our nation, someone will get on camera saying, why does God let stuff like this happen? I think a question for a thankful heart is, why doesn't stuff like this happen more often? Right? Think about the sheer amount of evil that God restrains every single day. He lavishes his common grace on us. Then, the provision of God, common grace. Then, secondly, for some of us in the room, we have salvation provided by God. So not only are we the unworthy recipients of the daily common grace of God, but we are given salvation solely as a gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So if you are here this morning, 
and you are in Christ. You have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus. Not only are you the unworthy recipient of the common grace of God, but you are also the unworthy recipient of the grace of God demonstrated through Christ. That he took the wrath that was rightly due your sins. He fully paid the price, and you will not stand guilty for your sins in eternity. You are fully saved. God has done that over and above the sheer common grace that we're demonstrated every day. And then thirdly, consider the unique works of God. So the common grace of God, the salvation provided by God, and then we have these unique works of God. Unforeseen, abnormal, unexpected perhaps. Provision by God that catches us off guard, that stuns us in beauty. Perhaps it's the blessing of a job, the birth of a child, the healing in marriage, health after a season of long sickness, At times and at points, God does a unique work in our lives that stuns us with gratitude. The danger for us is we tend to hyperfixate there. As if, if God is not doing those things in your life right now, he is not still good. Friends, just suggestion. The common grace and the salvation that's provided through Christ is more than enough. It is more than enough for our lives. Think about this through the lens of the disciples. They were born at a time during Jesus lived. They were given common grace. They are called by God to follow him. They've seen these daily, consistent miracles. They, given all this evidence of the provision of God, and still it seems that it's white noise in their lives. Jeremiah Burrs, in his old book that I would commend to you, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, is quoted as saying this, Are you the king's son, the son, the daughter of the king of heaven, and yet so disquieted and troubled and vexed at every little thing that happens? As if the king's son were to cry out that he is undone for losing his toy. What an unworthy thing would this be? So do you. You cry out if you are undone, and yet you are a king's son. You who stand in relation to God as to a father, who dishonor your father in this, as if either he had not the wisdom or the power or the mercy enough to provide for you. Question for my heart this week, if not for yours. It's whether the normal provision of God has become white noise in my life. And I use normal and quite quote fingers because common grace and salvation through Christ is far from normal. But has that lost its freshness in our hearts? If so, you are in the same danger of the condemnation that faced the disciples in passages like this. And then last thing I want you to consider, the brokenness of the people, the provision of God, and then the satisfaction of the recipients. The satisfaction of the recipients. You see it in both our stories this morning. He has done all things well, and they went away satisfied and full. They went away. No one is being picky at the feeding of the 5,000. I don't like fish, God. What you doing? No one is critiquing this work. The deaf man can't be stopped. They are satisfied in the provision of God. I would suggest to you this morning that the opposite of satisfaction in our lives is not need, but rather it is grumbling. A grumbling heart reveals a lack of satisfaction in the Lord. This morning, we need a gospel for grumblers because, friends, grumbling and complaining does not age well. 
No one walked into the room this morning and said, I can't wait to sit next to the person that does nothing but complain. During the meet and greet, I'm going to sprint for that dude that's just got a constant scowl. I know he's going to cheer me up. Just the news that I want for this day. We see in the scriptures that grumbling is far from a JV sin. In Psalm 106, the fall of the people in the wilderness is placed upon the fact that they murmured against God in their tents. How often are you and I guilty of murmuring against God? And so this morning, let me encourage you who are often like me guilty of dissatisfaction in the Lord. Paul's words from Philippians 2. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things without complaining or grumbling. I mean, Paul, come on, bro. All things? Really? You never had to write silly essays for a college introductory course, Paul. Calm down. Did you ever wake up at 4 a.m. with a sick kid that just won't stop being sick? That without complaining? Paul, I bet you never met my obnoxious coworker. Surely there's an aside for that. Do all things without complaining or grumbling. You can rest assured that anytime someone comes to you and says, I just need to vent, it's never going to go well. Right? Venting is not a godly virtue. Complaining and griping is not fit for those of us that wear the gospel. In fact, Paul says that it's a way that we shine as lights into the world. These, this freedom from normal sins, like complaining and grumbling, is a distinctive way to set apart the Christian life. Perhaps you say, I'll never murder anybody. I'm never going to commit adultery. Perhaps those things are not the primary things that makes the church distinct in a city like Greenville. Perhaps it's the fact that we're distinctly positive about God's power and his provision. Perhaps it's the fact that we don't always complain and grumble. Perhaps that's the way the light of the gospel shines most clearly. We can have Joel Osteen hope without a Joel Osteen theology. <laughs> because we understand the gospel. That gives us what Paul says, a, a Paul Tripp says, a thank-based lifestyle rather than a complaint-based lifestyle. This is where the gospel intersects our lives. Notice, I mean, this is stark irony. If there's anyone that has a reason to grumble in the gospels, who is it? Jesus, right? I mean, imagine the grumbling and complaining that he could have made on the way to the cross. Access to Facebook, like, this is unfair. Everyone flee. Can you believe what they're doing? And yet he goes to the cross willingly, on our behalf, the mark of one whose life has been radically transformed by the gospel should be overwhelming gratitude. And friends, for my heart this week, that is the gospel that I need to hear. That is the gospel that we all need to hear. So I send you out this morning, not simply with an exhortation to say thanks to daddies. Do that. By all means, do that. But would you do more than that? Would you beg God for the gospel to transform your heart such that you live a life of thankfulness? Every single day. And this morning, this is one of the reasons we sing most of our songs after the sermon, because we want to have space to just say thanks, to praise God. And as we do that, I'm going to pray for us in a minute, and I'm going to invite you 
Perhaps you've walked away from the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 and grumbled because you didn't get chicken instead of fish. And this morning, you need to come to God and say, man, I blew it. I am sorry for the way that my heart grumbles. Perhaps you have fallen prey to grumbling to someone else in this room. Churches are really good for that, right? That we baptize grumbling as prayer request. Can't believe what this person did. I can't believe. And perhaps you need to repent together that the gospel hasn't intersected your heart that way. And as God sees fit for you to stand and sing this morning, I want to invite you to do that as we close. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize how easily our minds get lulled to sleep with your goodness to us. It becomes white noise so quickly in my own heart. And that lack of thankfulness, that lack of gratitude, that lack of satisfaction builds up a head of steam in my life. And I get hardened to your work. And I need the gospel to till up the soil of my heart so that the, the seed of the gospel bears much fruit. We need to be seen as the kind of people that live with overwhelming gratitude so that we shine as lights in a dark and depraved world. And perhaps for my friends this morning, some find themselves on the upswing of joy and provision, some on the backside of the curve of need and doubt and fear and discouragement. Would you, as a way only your spirit can do, intersect our hearts, convict them where conviction is needed, bring hope where it is needed, and challenge where it is needed, and may we go away satisfied this morning, saying, truly, you have done all things well. We ask that in the name and the hope of Christ.